In this episode of Between the Lines, researcher and tax expert Jalia Kangave interviews Mick Moore, Professorial Fellow at the Institute of Development Studies and Senior Fellow of the International Centre for Tax and Development, and Wilson Pritchard, Research Fellow at the Institute of Development Studies and the CEO of the International Centre for Tax and Development. Along with Odd Fjeldstad, Mick and Wilson are authors of the book Taxing Africa, Coercion, Reform and Development, which offers a fascinating insight into the key issues facing policymakers, tax collectors, civil society activists and donors working to increase revenues to finance sustainable development in Africa. The authors discuss, amongst other things, what motivated them to write the book and what stories of lived experiences were important in developing this book. So I'm joined by Mick and Will to discuss their book, Taxing Africa, which was published in 2018. I have to say there are many things that I like about the book, uh, but two things stand out in particular. The first is that the book is very accessible. When, you know, when we think about tax, we also often think about complex technical issues that are reserved for you know, particular groups of people like lawyers, economists, or accountants. Yet in this book, you manage to make taxation about storytelling, about you know, things that we can easily relate to. And, and, and I think this is really important particularly as we see you know, more students in uh, universities and secondary schools in Africa engaging in tax debates. So, so I see this as you know, the kind of book that they can pick up um, to help them understand what the big questions are. The, the other thing that I really like about the book is that it, it's quite actionable, right? That it's a kind of a book that someone in civil society can pick up and, and design an advocacy policy uh, to, to go about their work. It's, it's a kind of book that a policymaker can, can pick up to, to change the ways of doing things, you know, to make their tax system more equitable, for example. So, 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 you know, thank you for writing a book that is, you know, both inclusive and policy relevant, because as you say in the book, tax really is about the big societal questions of development uh, and equity and good government. So I'll, I'll start off with Mick and, 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 you know, maybe could you tell us what motivated you to write the book and, and why now? Um, thanks, Jalia. Actually, what you said in your introduction suggests that to some extent we succeeded in one of our major objectives, which was accessibility. And as you say, the great bulk of writing and commentary on taxation is complex and technical. And often that is for very good reason, because it's technical specialists talking to other technical specialists. But there is also a slightly less benign side to all this inaccessibility, because I think we, we all would agree, and I think you would probably agree, that most taxation systems in the world are frankly not very equitable and they're not very fair. And one important basis of that inequity is the fact that they're really difficult to understand. Um, often tax legislation is written in complex ways, um, but these things are also discussed in complex ways. And what we tried to do was to say to ourselves, well, okay, we accept the complexity, we accept the need for that discussion, 
but how can we bring these issues uh, to a wider audience in a way that they will understand? So that's a general point about tax. It's not specific about Africa, actually. That, I mean, that would be true of anywhere in the world, and I think the need is the same. But um, there are some also some Africa-specific issues, as you said, why now? I think probably really two main issues here. One is that over the last 20 years or so, to a greater extent than many people realize, Africa has shifted away from aid. Um, I still think some people have this sort of rather old fashioned view that aid is a major source of income for most African governments. Well, that's no longer true. Um, it's a major source of income for a rather small number of African governments these days. Most African governments uh, fund themselves mainly from their own taxes. Um, but this is a relatively new phenomenon, and it's uh, something that is not, I think, adequately discussed or appreciated. So we wanted to develop that debate. But the other thing that has happened now is that partly in response to this relative success in raising revenues, is that a lot of the international community is putting pressure on the governments of low-income countries to raise more revenue. Um, this was originally to uh, fund the Millennium Development Goals, but of course now with COVID, um, there is that pressure. And um, we understand that, and it's fine, but an important issue in this book that really I think goes throughout is the idea that um, there are major issues of equity as well as the amount of tax raised. And as we've sometimes said in various fora, we are much more interested in better taxation than we are in more taxation. So I think those are the two main reasons. Thank you, Mick. I'm interested in knowing more about the title and, and, and this will go to Will. Where did the title come from, particularly the second part, you know, why coercion reform and development? Uh, we've written a book that in some ways makes the case that taxation is an important topic uh, and that stronger tax systems can be an actually integral part of effective development uh, in countries around the world uh, and particularly in Africa in this case. But while we're writing a book that says that tax systems can be a key part of effective development, that stronger tax systems can be a foundation for building a stronger social contract between citizens and their governments, we wanted to start from an understanding that it's not necessarily those things. Uh, and in fact, in many places historically and in the contemporary period, taxation isn't this positive force through which taxes are collected and transformed into revenues, uh, but instead it's something very different uh, and fundamentally coercive, right? Uh, if you imagine a tax system, what we like to imagine is a tax system is about a government going out and sort of politely asking citizens to contribute to the public purse so that they can provide services in return. Uh, but we know that historically uh, and today, Often it's something very different, right? where governments go out, forcefully really take revenue from citizens and in which citizens get very little in return. Uh, and so a central part of our book is trying to understand how you transition from tax systems defined by coercion, by arbitrariness, by a lack of reciprocity, uh, are then reformed to become something more developmental, uh, something through which citizens do genuinely contribute to the public good uh, and through which governments provide things in return. And I think the importance of starting from coercion for us was rooted a little bit uh, initially in trying to start from history, right? And trying to think about where these tax systems have come from in most African countries and how they're understood. 
Uh, and the origin of most what we sort of think of as quote unquote modern tax systems in Africa comes in the colonial period. Uh, and that's actually part of where we start the book. Uh, to remember that a lot of these taxes have their origins in the colonial period, during a period in which colonial governments were extractively taking money uh, from colonial subjects in order to fund a colonial state rather than to provide benefits to citizens. Um, and we know that as a result in much of Africa, you know, historical memories of taxation are not memories of taxation rooted in a social contract, but instead are memories of taxation rooted in coercion by the colonial state. And so there is for many, this deep distrust of taxation that dates back to that history. Uh, and so seen in long historical, um, long historical perspective, we wanna understand how we transition from that historical origin towards more inclusive developmental tax systems. Um, but while talking about history, we also don't wanna lose sight that that's also part of the contemporary reality. Uh, I think particularly for lower income taxpayers, taxpayers often at the local government level, we provide lots of evidence in this book. But for them, again, the experience of taxation often isn't about providing funds to then fund public services, but is really about experiences of much more arbitrary coercive extraction by the state and by state agents, both formally and informally, but with little arriving in return. And again, for those taxpayers in particular, the central question in many ways of the study of taxation is how do you transition from that coercive situation uh, towards something that's more contractual, um, that's more consensual, and that ref reflects much more reciprocity between governments and their citizens. Uh, thanks, th thanks, Will. Uh, um, I think the coercion part, like like you say, it, it, it's quite interesting, and and you know, both historical as it is current, and uh, also as we increasingly talk about uh, the social contract. Uh, I, I think I think that's what I find interesting in a number of issues that are that arise from this book you know that the social contract doesn't just come about and that you you cannot force it so so but but before we go into more detail in any of those things um i know that you address a number of issues in the book uh, can you provide a summary a brief summary of what these issues are one set of issues surrounds the idea that a key challenge of strengthening tax systems in Africa, as with much of the world, of course, uh, is to make tax systems fairer and more equitable. Um, that is to ensure that everyone's paying what they should uh, the same way under the law. Uh, and in particular, that the relatively well-off are paying all the taxes that they should, uh, and the less well-off are not being asked to pay sort of exorbitant, coercive, arbitrary uh, kind of taxes to the state. Um, and so when we think about this question of how do you make systems more equitable uh, and more progressive over time, we then focus in on a set of overlapping issues that I think have contributed to a lack of equity in tax systems across Africa. And I think it's really important up front to say you know, that inequity is quite profound, right? And that's why it's so central for us. Uh, you know, if, they, if, we, if we were to think about some stylized facts about tax systems in Africa, and again, this isn't only an African story, two things really stand out. The first is the extent to which the very well-off don't pay all the taxes that they should. You know, if we think about the big gaps in revenue collection in most African states, the biggest of those gaps is poor tax compliance among the wealthiest. Um, and, and the second stylized fact is again, as I mentioned earlier, that for low-income groups, the tax burdens often informal rather than formal, but nonetheless, these burdens from the state are particularly high for low-income groups. Um, so put those together, there's this enormous challenge of equity. Uh, and we try to attack thinking about that challenge of greater equity from multiple perspectives. One of them is to look at the, the impact of international tax rules and to look at the ways in which international tax rules, both for corporations and for wealthy individuals, 
have undermined that desire for equity because they've created space for larger firms and for wealthy individuals to hide their revenues and profits uh, and incomes from governments, thus reducing the ability of governments to tax them effectively. And so we think a little bit about the nature of those problems and how they might be addressed. And the second is we really zoom in on this lack of tax compliance, particularly with income taxes by wealthy individuals, right? And asking ourselves, why is it that despite the fact that wealthy individuals are often relatively visible, why is it despite the fact that tax agencies seem to be capable in principle of identifying those people, that we see, still see such low levels of actual tax compliance from among the best off, right? And how can we understand the technical, but also the administrative and political barriers uh, to closing that gap? which seems so central to building a tax system that is um, that is really developmental, uh, that is really consensual, uh, that really serves all citizens. Building on that focus on tax, on tax compliance by the rich, we then focus also on property taxes, uh, asking the same kind of question. Right? Why is it that despite the fact that large properties are readily visible and accessible to tax collectors, that in practice, uh, the largest property owners in particular often don't pay even a small share of the taxes that they really should pay under a more effective system. And again, how do we make those tax systems more effective to ensure that particularly the best off, but also all other taxpayers are paying what they should and doing so consistently. And then finally, we shift our, our attention uh, to what we call in the book, small taxes, uh, but by which we mean taxes uh, on smaller taxpayers, on smaller businesses, to understand the extent that while in, uh, while in national data, it looks like these taxpayers often don't pay very many taxes. In practice, if you look at their day-to-day -day experience, if you look at what they're paying formally, but also informally to state officials, that actually they're often bearing very heavy tax burdens. And there we've drawn various surveys conducted by various people within the ICTD network um, that have really highlighted the extent of those burdens on low-income people. And we try to think about why is that happening and how could one build a system in which uh, those burdens are more predictable, more equitable, um, uh, and less burdensome on those with the lowest incomes. Okay, um, well, amongst the various other subjects we covered, one which is very dear to my heart is tax administration in Africa. Um, this is a real conversation stopper. Uh, just tell someone that that's what you're interested in and you, you look a little strange. Um, but it is actually very important. And it's important because the process of paying tax is uh, often long and it's drawn out. It involves a lot of interaction between uh, tax collection staff and taxpayers. And much of the inequity and the pain of tax systems is actually embodied in the collection process rather than in tax, the formal tax policies. So it's very important to understand it. Um, we don't understand it in great detail. We have a little bit of insight into it. Um, and in particular, research that's been done by some of our colleagues in the International Center for Tax and Development tells us there is a lot of scope for making the tax collection, tax administration process simpler and less painful for taxpayers. But I should also say at the same time, which we document a little bit, um, African tax administrations have actually restructured and improved and become more efficient and more user friendly to some significant degree over the last few decades. So this is not an area solely of problems, it's an area of some progress. But anyway, that's enough of um, my hobby horse. The other 
subject we deal with is something that generates much more popular interest these days, which is gender and taxation. Um, it is ironical that you are a gender and tax specialist in Africa. So what I'm going to say is what I get from you, <laughs> not from, uh, from everyone else. There is a large literature on the central question of whether women are disadvantaged in taxation systems. And to the extent that we have a general conclusion so far, it, it comes in two parts. And it, one is that most of the gender inequalities and inequities in taxation systems that we found in richer countries and people campaign about, and that's particular, for example, rules about taxation around marriage, these are not actually very important in Africa. But conversely, there are significant probably very significant gender inequalities in taxation in Africa, but they're not really written into tax policy. They are much more in tax administration and in practice, and they impact particularly adversely on small women business, women-led businesses and women traders. So there's a big area here, but it's not something that's really amenable to some simple policy change. It's going to involve uh, you know, a very long, hard slog and involve you know, the civil society organizations you talked about. So that's a second. A third one, um, which is important in a very different way in terms of volumes of money, is the taxation of what we call extractives, oil and gas, but particularly mining. And this is particularly important in Africa, really, for three reasons, well, two main reasons. Um, one is that the under taxation of mining is more striking than the under taxation of oil and gas. And the other one is that it seems clear that as we hopefully move into the post fossil fuel world, although we assume that oil and to some lesser extent natural gas is going to be less important in Africa in 20 years than it is today, mining is going to be probably just as important and possibly more important. Uh, mine commodities like copper, coltan, nickel, etc., are really central to you know all kinds of uh, elements of uh, current and emerging you know digital, uh, electrical, uh, elect uh, uh, sorry battery based economies, etc. And there are very big problems here in under taxation. Um, they are essentially political problems. They're not technical problems. Again, no simple solution, but we discuss in some detail. And finally, let me say, um, we have a, a final chapter on governance, but I think in a sense, um, you and Will have already summoned up our message on that, which is potentially there are very important positive synergies between good taxation systems and good governance systems. But at the same time, there's the potential for the opposite to happen and bad taxation to exacerbate governance problems. So we have a, um, some very interesting and challenging issues there. So thank you both. Obviously, you, you've touched on so many issues, it, each, each of which could be its own po podcast. So I guess, you know, reflected again in the title of the book, Taxing Africa. So, so we're not going to go into much detail on that. I, I just want to move into something else. And, and I, I talked about this in the introduction, uh, being one of the things that I really liked about how the book was written is that almost every chapter 
starts with a story. And, and I just wanted to find out what stories of lived experiences were important in developing this book. You know, I'll start with um, not an individual story, but instead an experience of mine that I think it really shaped my, my work in this area, but also our book. Uh, and it's a story that's recounted in the opening chapter of this book, uh, which is some time I spent uh, with someone named uh, Dr. Samuel Jibao uh, in Sierra Leone back in 2009. Uh, Dr. Jibao is now um, is now the Commissioner General of the Revenue Authority in, in Sierra Leone. At the time, he was the head of, of research in the National Revenue Authority in Sierra Leone. Uh, and, and we ended up in Sierra Leone together because we were doing a piece of research looking quite broadly at some of the challenges uh, associated with the tax system in Sierra Leone. Um, and so because we were working together over a number of weeks, you know, we'd work during the day doing interviews uh, and gathering data. And then in the evenings, we'd, we'd get together, uh, you know, we'd go to the restaurant, we'd have some dinner, uh, we'd have a beer together, and we'd just sort of chat. And, and for me, this was very early in, early on in my study of tax systems in Africa. And my, my overwhelming memory of that experience is of Samuel telling me stories about what it was like to do his job, right? Uh, the kinds of challenges he encountered in trying to make the taxes in Sierra Leone work effectively. Uh, and it was really in those stories that I think I began to get a much richer understanding of the nature of the challenges, but also the broader dynamics of tax administration, of tax policy. Um, and so began to think in really different ways about how reform could happen. Um, I think a few things stood out to me, you know, in the kinds of stories that Samuel would tell me, um, which really relate to some of the themes we've talked about already. I think one of them was the extent to which you know, people inside the tax administration, so to take you know, Samuel uh, in this case, you know, he knew a lot of the challenges that were happening within tax administration. He understood that there were international companies or wealthy individuals who weren't paying all of their taxes, but struggled to tackle that problem, right? Uh, he understood that there were mining firms uh, who had struck advantageous deals with government uh, or who were exploiting international rules not to pay all the taxes that they should, the challenge was what to do about it, how to navigate the technical and administrative and political challenges of making that work better. Um, he also told me these great stories about, you know, that he as a senior tax administrator trying to get out, to sort of get out in the field with tax collectors, right? Going out and spending time at border posts uh, around the country, getting out and going down to local government areas to understand how administration worked in practice, right? And getting a feel for the ways in which you have formal rules in place, but then you have these more informal practices that govern the way that taxes were actually being collected, particularly for lower income groups um, around the country, right? And the, and the efforts that he was making through his work to try to make those systems work better, more fairly, more equitably, um, and, and so forth. Uh, I think likewise, you know, thinking about what he was doing, you know, you got a, a feel for it, but I think the broader politics around taxation, right? The challenges of building popular support for tax systems, uh, the challenges of building popular support for more effective enforcement of tax rules. And again, sort of seeing that through the eyes of a tax administrator, I think for me began to allow me to see these questions in a way that was more useful in many ways. Because uh, only from starting from how these systems actually worked that we could think more meaningfully about how they, they change and improve over time. I think finally it's worth saying that it also highlighted the fact that in, in, this, in this quest, sort of tax administrators themselves were often our best allies. I think to me, that was also eye-opening, right? There's, there's a risk when you do this kind of work of thinking, you know, the tax administrators are the problem. Uh, and no doubt, as with anything else in the world, there are, there are better tax administrators uh, and, and there are less good ones. Um, you know, but sitting, sitting with Samuel over these dinners, over these beers, you realized 
you know, there are deeply committed people in these agencies who have a deep, deep, deep knowledge of these challenges. Uh, and that by listening to their experiences, by understanding their challenges, uh, we could learn a lot about, you know, how, how positive change uh, in tax systems happens. Uh, and so as I said, that's why we started the book by talking about those interactions, by talking about those lessons, and then try to bring them into each of the chapters as a way of framing, uh, framing the issues that we're looking at. So in many ways, and, and you've talked about this a, a little bit, in many ways, Taxing Africa is a reflection of ICTD research that has been carried out by yourselves and you know ICTD colleagues since 2010. What are some of the things that have surprised you about this research? And I'd be interested in hearing maybe from, from Mick first and then Will. Okay, thank you, Jolly. Well, actually a lot of things. Let me let me just give you two. And the first thing that surprised me is something for which um, I have to thank you more than anyone else, uh, which is research that you really initiated and got going on the taxation of wealthy people initially in Uganda, um, and then in Rwanda and other countries in Africa. And the thing that is really surprising is the extent to which the non-taxation of wealthy people is just open. You know, we come from an environment here where we're used to stories in the press about um, tax evasion being hidden. You know, Panama Papers and uh, all kinds of other papers, etc., and tax lawyers and tax specialists and shell companies and all kinds of other ways in which the wealthy hide their income. But you were responsible more than anyone else, you remember, for finding in, I can't remember the exact figure, you can probably tell me, but in Uganda, you discovered that of, I think, the 60 most prominent lawyers in the country, if I'm right, if I'm, only about 12 were actually filing uh, personal income tax returns every year. So the extent to which wealthy and indeed quite well-known people were just avoiding personal income tax, for example, was, well, it was impressive in a slightly um, not very positive kind of way, but it's striking. The other thing that strikes me, this is actually rather more positive. I think when we began the International Center for Tax and Development, I think the dominant view from outside Africa and probably actually within Africa was that, you know, tax administration in Africa is an area of problem and difficulty. You know, everything is kind of bad and it needs improvement. And of course, there's some truth in that. But what was really surprising to me is when one began to look at statistics of various kind, including comparative statistics, is that sub-Saharan African countries, on average, are not bad at taxing. Um, I mean, they're not bad in two major senses. The amount of tax they raise as a proportion of GDP is very respectable in comparative terms, other countries today, other countries at previous times. So, you know, this is not an area of enormous problem, even if there's scope to improve it. But also on various measures, tax administration in sub-Saharan Africa on average is actually better than it is in, for example, South Asia and Latin America and the Caribbean. So this was a pleasant surprise. There's some really, you know, really positive things going on here. The other two things I mentioned uh, are first, I think, the prominence of international tax debates over the past decades. Uh, you know, I started working on tax issues, I guess, around 2006 uh, with, with Mick. Um, and when I started, I don't think it ever occurred to me that I would be spending so much time thinking about international tax rules. 
Because I think when you when you thought about tax debates in Africa, um, when I started this work, I think international tax was relatively invisible within those debates. Um, I don't think because of a lack of recognition that it mattered, but in part because of a sense that they were very hard to change. They weren't responsive to the needs of African governments. Uh, and so in a sense, they weren't something worth about. That changed really dramatically, I think, over the past uh, over the past decade. Um, that's reflected broader international debates, but it has brought the importance of international tax rules much more to the forefront with the recognition that international tax rules have not worked nearly well enough uh, for taxing multinational corporations and that international tax rules have made it far too easy uh, for wealthy individuals uh, to hide wealth overseas, to hide income overseas and avoid personal income taxes. Um, and so I think that's become a much more central part of the debate. And in turn, for me, it's been just fascinating to understand, I think, two things. Uh, the first is the extent to which it's not just that intervals have been international rules have been inadequate in general, but the ways in which they've been particularly inadequate for low-income countries. Right? I'm beginning to understand the ways in which these rules work much better for richer countries, but were really hugely difficult uh, to implement and administer for low-income countries. Uh, and trying to think about what that means for reform, right? How do we need to think about what international rules should look like differently uh, when we consider the position of lower income countries uh, with different kinds of capacities, different kinds of taxpayers and so on. Um, and secondarily then is again, recognizing that the debate about international rules isn't just an international debate, but it's one that has to link between what's happening internationally and what's happening domestically. Thinking about the challenges of translating international rules into actual outcomes in country, right? The administrative side of international rule setting and trying to think about for low-income countries, what do international rules need to look like so that they will work effectively in practice, administratively uh, inside lower-income lower country governments. Um, and I think that's been a big challenge. It's a big challenge still looking forward for us as we think about challenges on the horizon is how do you make these rules work better uh, for lower-income countries uh, and African countries in particular here. Um, the second one, and I've alluded to this already, um, is the extent and nature of what we've called here informal taxation. But essentially, levies by government officials or sometimes by government officials, often on lower income groups, but also on higher income taxpayers that don't enter into the government budget. But from the perspective of taxpayers, look a lot like taxes. I think the way that this happened was uh, actually interestingly, this was a piece of, it, of research that was largely uh, initiated by Samuel Jabal, who I talked about uh, a moment ago. You know, he said that we should go out and do a survey of taxpayers and try to understand what they actually pay, what their, what their experience of taxation actually look like in practice. And so rather than asking what will taxes and how much revenue is collected from different groups of taxpayers, we began to design surveys to go to taxpayers and ask, what do you pay to state officials for a whole wide range of reasons? And what do you pay also to non-state actors that look a lot like taxation, right? So sort of unrequited levies, things that isn't money you're spending to get a good, uh, or to get a particular product, but things that are being levied from you for some broader purpose. And what we found was that even though formally it appeared that low-income people were contributing very little in tax revenue, if you looked at official statistics, that in fact, these people were often making huge numbers of payments to state officials and non-state actors um, that effectively from their perspective constituted a very heavy tax burden, or at least a very heavy fiscal burden, if we don't wanna talk about these as taxes. And sometimes that was because they were paying, you know, market levies or other kinds of levies to state officials that simply weren't being recorded in the government budget, right? So it wasn't visible, maybe because these were going into the pockets of tax administrators, maybe because they were being managed off budgets. Um, once you started talking to taxpayers, you could see those things. Uh, 
Sometimes it was because you had services, government services that were notionally free. So education, access to health clinics, uh, but in practice, uh, individual users were having to pay informally to access those services, right? So this was an additional part of the cost of accessing notionally free services that often was overlooked when we thought about the burden, the sort of fiscal burdens on taxpayers, um, but they were really very significant. Um, likewise, if you got down to the local government level, you, know, you looked at the local government level, and, and a lot of this work was done by one of our other colleagues, uh, Vanessa Van Bogart, right? She, she started asking, well, what are people paying to community organizations, right? And you discover that a lot of service provision at the local level happens through informal authorities, through community development organizations, uh, through chiefs in some cases, sometimes even through armed groups. And those groups also are making levies on taxpayers and citizens, which they're then using to provide services. But all of those things were part of the burden on low-income people of funding the state. I think it had been largely invisible. And the surveys we conducted, particularly in Sierra Leone and in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, were really eye-opening because what we found was that those levies were hugely inequitable. That is, as a share of their income, low-income people were paying much more than higher-income people, uh, which is exactly the opposite of what you'd want to be the case. Um, but also that those burdens were heavy. Right? We were finding that low-income people uh, at the bottom of the income distribution seemed to be paying, in some cases, as much as sort of 20 percent of their income in these various kinds of tax-like payments. Um, that's a hugely heavy burden on low-income people. I think it really helped to reshape how we think about the challenges uh, of taxation on the continent. Before we go towards the end, I just wanted to to find out what you you both see as as the really important issues for for policy in the next ten years. Uh, shall I start? Um, I think we could probably give you a very long list here, but um, let's try and keep it fairly short. First, and I hope this is reality and not just um, aspiration that issues of equity in tax systems will be taken more seriously. And we hope that the COVID is going to give us a push in the right direction here. Um, there are many dimensions of this. Um, we've already mentioned you know, income tax not actually being collected on a lot of wealthy people. The complete absence of wealth taxes of any kind in Africa currently. We hope there'll be some development on that. We hope, as Will was explaining earlier, that will start with property taxation, especially bigger properties in big cities, but build up from there. And at the other end of the scale, this whole issue of informal taxes levied on poor people and often levied at quite high rates on poor people, whether something can be done to squash the the worst dimensions of that. So a lot of equity issues that we hope will at least be talked about rather than just talking about how do we raise more revenue. We, we hope not just talking, we hope for action. The other thing that I think we should and may see some action on is the integration of national and local taxes. Let me briefly explain that. In essence, most of the good things that we've said about tax administration in Africa refer to national tax administrations. And they have reformed and improved a lot, partly because the external aid that they've received has come almost entirely to them. But a lot of African countries are already politically very centralized. Uh, Subnational governments, whether local or regional or territorial, have very little revenue of their own and often do tax in this very informal and coercive way. And um, the balance is not right here. 
I mean, it's, a, it's really problematic. There is far too much emphasis on the national level taxation. Um, local level taxation is left largely unregulated in most countries, if not all of them, has many problems. So this is only going to be solved by better integration and cooperation between uh, national and subnational revenue raising. So we can, I think we can expect some progress on that. Um, let will add several to my list. Let me add four additional ideas to that list, uh, and I'll try to be brief. The first is building on what I said a few minutes ago. I think is continuing to work uh, on the reform of international tax rules uh, and really working to better align them with the needs of countries in Africa, uh, and also I think many other sort of lower income countries around the world. Uh, as I mentioned, there's been a lot of international tax reform over the past decades. Uh, in many ways, that's extraordinarily exciting. I think there's been important steps made forward, but there are still really big questions about whether the international rules as written today are really well aligned with the needs of African countries, of lower income countries, um, and whether they're going to actually allow them to collect taxes more effectively uh, for multinational companies, but also from wealthy individuals. Um, so I think as we look towards the next few years, there's a really important question about studying the extent to which these rules are actually working in practice for low-income countries. And if they're not really working, right? If they're difficult to administer effectively in low-income countries and in African countries, how can we then think about further reforming international rules and the processes around them to make them work much better uh, for countries in Africa and around the world? Uh, the second set of issues, I guess, is closely related uh, and relates to the rapid digitalization of the economy. Again, this is an issue that's true around the world, right? Tax agencies all over the world are asking themselves, how are we going to ensure effective taxation uh, of firms and transactions in a world where the economy is digitalizing, where so much, so many transactions are happening online? Um, and I think it's gonna be a big question uh, moving forward, likewise uh, for countries across Africa, where that same digitalization is occurring and it raises the same kinds of challenges about how to effectively identify those economic activities and how to make sure that they're taxed fairly within the jurisdictions in which those transactions are effectively taking place. Um, and again, here, I think it's important to remember that the right solution for richer countries may not be quite the same solution that's needed for lower income countries. We need to continue to think about how we ensure that countries in Africa get a fair share of the taxation uh, of that digitalizing economy um, and that the rules and process around that are well suited to their situations. Uh, I think a third, um, and closely related again, is the digitalization of tax administration. Uh, one of the key responses to a digitalizing economy is to have a more digitalized tax administration, right? a tax administration that can assemble data from multiple different sources, bring that data together in order to understand what's happening at the level of businesses, but also understand the incomes and assets of individual taxpayers in order to tax them effectively. Now, in a digitalizing economy, in some ways, the pressure to digitalize tax administration accelerates. But we now have this wide body of evidence that tells us two kinds of things. I think one is that African tax administrations often lack effective access to key bits of data to help them to tax effectively. Uh, and the second is that they often don't use that data as effectively as they could. Right? Partially, that's a, that's a shortcoming of the IT systems that are in place. But often, it's not about getting the fanciest, most sophisticated IT system, it's about better using the systems that exist, about figuring out exactly what kinds of systems are needed so that data can be used more effectively uh, to strengthen tax administration. So I think focusing on how to make digitalization work 
effectively in practice uh, in African tax administrations is a really critical central question. Uh, and the last one, and I think this is a longer term one, uh, which we haven't talked about yet, uh, is the question of climate and environment related taxes. Um, there's been a big push uh, in recent years, and I think it's accelerated uh, in the wake of the pandemic to think about climate related taxes. How can taxes contribute to the effort to fight global, global climate change? Uh, and we obviously see acceleration of global discussions about, um, about carbon taxes, discussion now in Europe, for example, about border taxes to try to capture, um, capture climate related impacts. Um, but there's a big question here about what that should look like in African countries I mean, and how it might look different in different African countries at different levels of income. Right? Because we shouldn't assume that the right answer to climate taxes in wealthier countries is also the right answer for climate taxes in low income countries. And I think we don't know nearly enough about what the right approaches are to tackling climate related challenges through the tax system in African countries, bearing in mind in particular that African countries don't bear historical responsibility. Right? So we have this unique situation where African countries have a role to play in addressing the challenges of climate change, but they don't bear historical responsibility for where we are now. And so against that backdrop, what's the right approach uh, to green and climate change? taxes moving forward. Well, thank you. Thank you both. Um, obviously, you know, giving us a lot of things to think about. And, and um, again, uh, a lot to, you know, to debate going forward. Um, as, as we prepare to close, Mick, um, in your, you gave a TEDx lecture almost 10 years ago. And in that lecture, you were trying to convince the audience that tax is not a dry, boring, and technical subject, but that it, it can indeed be an interesting and fun field to work in. Uh, so I wondered if you could each share a story of when you've, uh, you have had the most fun working on taxation in Africa. Um, okay, shall I start? Well, when I gave that TEDx lecture, this I think this was partly aspirational. I was hoping it was going to be fun, um, but it has been fun. A um, couple of examples. Until COVID struck, the ICTD every year had uh, what we called our annual center meeting somewhere in Africa, um, sponsored by a national revenue authority. This is a very big sort of research network meeting uh, somewhere between 60, 70, 80, 90, up to 120 people, um, researchers and a large number of people from African tax administrations, etc. Well, I remember many actually very happy um, uh, dimensions of these meetings. Um, one that became quite common was actually going to the discotheque after the end of the meeting with the staff of the revenue administrations. And knowing that staff of revenue administrations actually like to go to discotheques was a great way of humanizing tax. So um, that was great. But the other thing that really sticks in my mind, and again, Jali, I have to thank you for this. You'll remember this. In Addis Ababa a few years ago, you had been doing research on taxing the wealthy in Uganda with staff of the Uganda Revenue Authority. And you arranged it that the Commissioner for Domestic Taxes would come to our annual center meeting in Addis Ababa and present the first uh, findings of this research. And to have a Commissioner of Taxes stand up and speak very frankly about the politics of trying to tax wealthy people in Uganda was totally stunning 
uh, the atmosphere was absolutely electric um, and it was absolutely delightful. So um, thank you for that great experience. Great, and I guess it then falls to me uh, for, for one last story. I'll, I'll just really echo what Mick has said, which is, I guess for me too, when I started studying taxes, uh, for which I give credit or blame uh, largely to Mick actually, uh, you know, there was this aspiration of it, this hope that it would be this sort of fun, exciting uh, field uh, that was promised. Um, and I think in every year since I've found exactly that, you know, that this, the tax community uh, in Africa is in fact this hugely tightly knit, connected, passionate community of people um, and that passion, I think, is reflected in spending a lot of time being really excited about talking about tax challenges, right? This big belief that those tax challenges aren't just about how do you raise a little bit more revenue, but it really is about this idea that, that taxing effectively is really the foundation for effective states. There can be a foundation uh, for linking uh, citizens more effectively to governments and so on. But then those, those professional discussions about taxation often then spill also into, into much broader friendships. Um, I think it's that, it's that potential to link those two things together that's been that's been so great um and just one illustration of that uh that stood out for me when you as you asked the question is you know i remember a few years ago and i, I won't mention names or countries uh, to protect the innocent i suppose but uh you know i was at this international meeting and towards the end of the day at that international meeting i i met a very senior tax official from one of the countries in which we've been working we'd never met before um you know we got to talking and we started by talking about tax challenges initially quite technically over time, then much more into the informal aspects of how tax systems work in practice. But by the end of that, we'd sort of become friends. Uh, and I remember we started talking at probably five in the afternoon. Uh, at three o'clock in the morning that same day, we were still talking. Uh, we'd been for a, a late night walk through the city. Uh, this person's son had joined us as well. So now uh, that was a family affair. I think it was just this great illustration of sort of the ties that bind within the tax field. Um, and the ways in which those professional ties then also sort of spill over into personal ties. Um, and that's been such a nice part of, uh, of working on these questions. Thank you so much for, for writing such a beautiful, accessible, and really relevant book. And it, it's been a great pleasure having this conversation with you. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe and share to help us spread the word. Do you have a great book we could feature in a future episode? then get in touch on email at between the lines at ids.ac.uk.